Life is full of challenges. With an unpredictable economy and just as surprising life changes, you need to be prepared to weather any storm. Elder law and estate planning attorney Kevin Tharp and financial advisor Gary Anderson are available to help you with life's difficult decisions. This is Truth in Planning. Avoiding the pitfalls of estate planning. I'm Gary Anderson, financial advisor, Anderson Advisors. And I'm Kevin Tharp, elder law and estate planning attorney. And Gary, that sounds like a topic that I should be talking about. Yeah, I'm going to kind of sw- we're going to kind of switch places today, uh, or on the surface it looks like it, Kevin. Anyway, but yes, just to, just to make sure that we uh, qualify everything here, you are the estate planner. You are an estate planning attorney. You're the estate planner, and the quicker financial advisors figure out that there, everybody has a role in people's lives as far as the planning part goes, the better off everybody's going to be. Sometimes there are a lot of financial advisors out there, and I've got friends that are this way, different parts of the country. Um, They take on the role more of estate planning from a legal perspective that I'm comfortable with. I don't understand that part of it because there are certain things that you have to be knowledgeable about with the law to be able to put together a good estate plan for someone. It's just the way it is. We need to recognize that. Don't be afraid of referring a client to an attorney who is good at that. Somebody like you who can take people through the estate planning process to make sure it fits what their needs are, what their family's needs are. And unfortunately, I think sometimes financial advisors, Kevin, can be a little bit insecure. And uh, insecure, and not with the work they do financially, they probably are very good at at investments and financial planning, but they're a little insecure into handing off their clients to another professional, period. But the main professional being an attorney who can help their clients ensure that things are going to happen with their stuff and happen with their family in ways that will benefit them and their family years down the line. So today I want to talk about some blunders, some things that happen with estate planning from a financial perspective that... um, that people might not even realize, that people might not even understand the ramifications of it until it's all said and done. So one of the things that I'm going to start out today with is the estate tax. And people call it the death tax. There's other names for it, too. Inheritance tax. Inheritance tax. And people ask me this question all the time, too, Kevin. Well, what kind of taxes am I going to pay when I get this money from my mom? Well, it depends. Most of the time, you're probably not going to have to pay any taxes if it's not an IRA or something. So from a perspective of the estate planning on the financial side, we want to make sure that people understand what's happening with our tax situation, because taxes really come into play when it comes to estate taxes, if estate taxes are as low as they or had lower limits like they used to. Now, in 2017, with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, basically the estate planning, the amount of money that you could leave to your family without paying a tax on it, doubled from around $11 million to $22, $23 million the way it is now. So it left a lot of people without any concerns for state planning, for state taxes whatsoever. Most people weren't in that picture. So with that amount of money 
yes, you you really limit the amount of people and families who will be paying a tax on anything they get from their heirs or from from their family, from anyone for that matter. So what we want to make sure of now, though, because the Tax Cuts and Job Acts, what was the thing that was created from by that, goes away January 2026. So we revert back to of the tax laws that we had before, the tax brackets that we had before and everything else. Included with that is the estate tax. Now it goes back in January of 2026, which is not long from now, goes back to around $11 million, maybe a little bit more per couple for a married couple. All right, so it's $5 million per person. Right, exactly. A little over $5 million per person. So... Now people, more people are going to be concerned about this because you have a whole lot more people than you even realize out there who are in that range. Because we're not just talking about money in the bank here. We're not talking about money in your investment account. We're talking about everything you have, everything you own, all of your assets. Because everything's included in that estate tax bucket. Uh, And I can tell you from uh, professional experience how that works. We're talking about estate planning blunders from a financial perspective, I'm talking with my co-host, Gary Anderson, financial advisor. And Gary today is, uh, we're switching hats. Gary is talking about estate planning and some important estate planning things. And the first one is the estate tax. And for, as you're right, Gary, for many, many years, uh, for over 20 years, most people didn't have to worry about it because the estate tax limits were so high. Uh, Right after I graduated law school, one of my first jobs was I was a tax attorney with the IRS, and I was in this department called the Estate and Gift Tax Department where I dealt with estate taxes. And there were a bunch of us, and we were busy. Why? Because back when I joined the IRS in late 89, early 90s, the estate tax limit was (laughs) $600,000. Before that, it had just gone up to 600000 from 250000 And so there were a lot of people, me included. I had a million-dollar life insurance policy, which is a part of your estate. If you own it at your death, it's a part of the estate tax bucket. And so one of the things, uh, I'm glad that you're pointing this out, is there will be a lot of people that if these tax laws go back to in 2026, go back to what they were a decade ago, then there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be hit by this. Um, They may be over five, but under 10, but they're married and they don't take advantage of some of the things that are out there from an estate tax planning standpoint, and their kids are going to end up paying estate tax. Well, and Kevin, that's something that now, if you're sitting there looking at maybe a married couple that has IRAs, they had 401ks. They did a great job of accumulating money all those years. They have this money. It's nothing now. I say nothing, but it is really something to see a married couple who are retiring with two, three, four million dollars in just pure IRA money. And you say, well, I'm still below. I'm still below the estate tax limits because if even if it goes down to 10 or $11 million like it's going to do in 2026, I'm still below that. But wait a minute. We've got that vacation home in Florida. Maybe we have a vacation home out in the Midwest somewhere, Wyoming, or in, in, the, in the Central West. 
things like that. You've got a st- you've got property there. Maybe you've got property in other parts of the state, other parts of the county. Maybe so you, you inherit some property. You, right, you have your home, so you have these things. Pretty much, you're probably going to be in that range of the estate tax exemption range. So you need to be thinking about that from an estate planning perspective. Make sure you're talking to your estate planning professional, that being your estate planning attorney. And um, one thing I do recommend, too, there, we have a lot of good attorneys around here, Kevin, and I don't have any problem with the, the, the fine work that they can do. When it comes to estate planning, though, you better have somebody who that's what they focus on. And I know you do that. That way, we're working together. Financial advisor, your estate planning attorney need to be able to communicate. This is a very, very important time. If they aren't communicating, then maybe you need to think about getting somebody else to help you. That's just the bottom line. Because if they can't communicate about something as important as your livelihood and the money that you're going to leave to your kids and your grandkids, more importantly, somewhere down the line, then... You need help. You need somebody to help you with that. Gary, what's the best way for our listeners to reach out to you? Kevin, they can reach us at Anderson Advisors, 888-371-2847. When we come back, we're going to talk about financial planning from a lawyer's perspective. Financial planning from a lawyer's perspective. I'm Kevin Tharp, elder law and estate planning attorney. And I'm Gary Anderson, financial advisor, Anderson Advisors. And Gary, in the previous segment, it started out where, as a financial advisor, you were talking about some estate planning pitfalls. Well, I know it sounds strange that what's going on with these guys today? You know, are they, is it, you know, role flipping? And it's, yeah, we are. <laughs> we're actually, uh, for purposes of this show, I'm talk I'm going to talk about financial planning from a lawyer's perspective. And as you talked about earlier, here's what we're not going to talk about. As a financial advisor, you're not in a position in a role, you're not an estate planner. Okay? That's right. You can gather documents, but you can't do anything with those documents. You can't review those documents and give people advice on those documents. And so one of the things I like uh, I've heard you say before is we don't need to see your legal documents. We don't need to have them on file to review them when something happens. Why? Because we're not lawyers. We don't get into recommending whether you need to have a trust or don't need to have a trust, whether you should have a will or a trust. We just get into uh, giving you advice on how to invest mm-hmm. and what about taxes. So from my perspective as a lawyer, I'm going to preface this segment by saying that as a lawyer, I respect your role in giving investment advice. I don't tell people whether this is a good investment or not a good investment. Should I put my money here or should I put my money there? Should I pay off my house with this inheritance that I received or should I keep it going and get the mortgage interest deduction? All of those things I tell clients, and they ask me that on a regular basis, just like I'm sure that people I know people ask you, well, here's a copy of my will or 
or trust. Can you look it over and tell me what it says? And I know what you say. I don't need it. That You need to get with a lawyer on that, especially mm-hmm. if Kevin's the lawyer who drew it up. You need to ask him questions yeah, exactly. about the legal document. So I don't get into telling people this is a good investment or not a good investment. What I get into, what I focus in the financial arena is this. Number one, I don't care how you have your assets invested, whether you have it invested in land or you have it invested in stocks or bonds or mutual funds or annuities or gold or whatever. All I'm concerned about is how is that asset, how is that investment titled? That is the first thing that I focus on. Why? Because that dictates everything when something happens. I get calls from people on a regular basis that their loved one passes away and they're calling me like last. Well, I'm calling you because we talked to the financial advisor and they told us that we don't have to probate. But we're at the bank and the bank is telling us we got to probate. So I'm calling you. What do we need to do? We need to probate that will. We need you to help us probate that will. And then we sit down and spend a few minutes with the client. They schedule an appointment and we spend a few minutes with them. And in 15 minutes or so, we figure out you don't have to, you don't have to probate. And you know why? Because I ask them, how are your assets titled? How was your loved one's assets titled? Oh, well, we got a beneficiary on that IRA. No probate. Oh, we titled the home in the name of a trust. No probate. That bank account was on joint. So why would these others tell us that we have to probate? Because they're getting into areas of the law. They're not lawyers. They're just telling you, a lot of times, they're telling you what they were trained in a training course to tell you. Somebody says, my loved one died, you freeze the account and tell them they got to go through probate. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're just repeating what somebody told them. Right. Or, I, you know, this Gary's talking about estate taxes earlier, and, you know, my insurance guy for years told me that my uh, this policy that uh, I'm leaving, my, my husband left me or my wife left me or my parents left me, that's tax-free. Well, yeah, it's income tax-free, but it's not necessarily estate tax-free because it's a part of your estate tax bucket. There's two taxes that we deal with in estate planning, Gary, and one of them is the estate tax or inheritance tax, like you talked about in the previous segment. And right now, it is $11 million per individual. So if you're married, there's $22 million before you, your kids have to pay estate taxes. And that number, $11 million per person, includes everything you own. Even my life insurance policy, even my term policy, yes. When I first went to work for the IRS, I worked in the estate tax department. Do you know what I realized? I wasn't told this in law school. I was newly married, and I had a $1 million life insurance policy. You know what the estate tax limit was when I was at the IRS? 600000 I owned that term life insurance policy. If I had died owning that term life insurance policy, you know what my estate tax value is? $1 million. I didn't own anything. Missy and I were living in an apartment. I didn't even own my car. 
I own nothing. You didn't have an estate. I didn't have an estate, <laughs> except that life insurance policy. And for estate taxes, oh, it would have gone to Missy tax income tax-free, but I would have been $400,000 over the mark because I owned that policy. I would not have wanted to have faced Missy if that had occurred that way, because yep. that tax bill would have been a little bit of a, um, uh, it would have an impact on what you would do with the money later on, for sure. So I think that was a great recommendation of don't underestimate what you're worth, because everything counts, and especially if you're a married couple. Mm-hmm. I know that. The, uh, I met with a married couple not long ago, and their combined estate value right now is about uh, $6 million, okay? If you include everything, $6 million. And right now, the estate tax limit, because they're married, is $22 million, 11 for the husband, 11 for the wife. So, so they're so, not worried about it. They're not worried about it. They're thinking, yeah. no, we're not worried about it at all. But as you said... In 2026, this law is likely, this estate tax law is likely to sunset, and they'll go back to estate tax limits like they were, I think, in 2005. Mm-hmm. And in 2005, the estate tax limits were $5 million per person. So that married couple that has a $7 million estate, they were like, well, so we're still fine. We're under it. We don't need to do anything. So they stick with their traditional planning of, number one, leave everything to my spouse and use a will. Okay. So the first thing that's going to, and then husband dies. So the first thing that's happened, you're going to go through probate. Okay. Well, I thought you don't go through probate if you're under the estate tax limit. Two different things. Got nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. You're going to go through probate uh, whether your estate's worth $500 or $500 million. It's the same process, too, by the way. Whether or not you go through probate is based on how things are titled. So you got this $7 million estate. Husband leaves at dies, leaves everything to his wife. She's now worth $7 million. And it's 2027. So she's still under the limit of $10 million, But then she dies in 2028. She's single. You know how much the limit is for a single person? $5 million. And she now has a $7 million estate. She's $2 million over the limit. Her kids are going to pay estate taxes on that $2 million at 40%. But go back to when husband and wife were alive. Husband and wife could have in their estate planning documents, including their revocable trust, they could have done what is called a credit shelter trust and a marital deduction trust. And if they had done that before, while husband and wife were both living, they would have sheltered the entire $7 million estate from future estate taxes. They would have saved their children millions in estate taxes, all because they, their estate planning attorney took into account the potential, all because their financial advisor said, there is a potential of estate taxes here. Let's take advantage of that. Let's put in some contingent provisions and you can do this estate tax planning folks in a revocable trust just like you can do it in a will and if you do it in a revocable trust not only do you save your family millions in taxes but you also avoid probate kevin why don't you give people your information gary the best way is through my website kevin tharp t-h-a-r-p-e.com are you going to leave your heirs with a capital gains tax problem 
That's coming up next. What is the step up in cost basis? I'm Gary Anderson, financial advisor, Anderson Advisors. And I'm Kevin Tharp, elder law and estate planning attorney. Kevin, at the end of the, your last segment there, I mentioned something about capital gains taxes. Um, that is one blunder, estate planning blunder, I think we need to potentially go over today because not taking full advantage of the step up in cost basis is something that um, you see a lot of people do. Now, before everybody just absolutely just turns the radio off, the sound of step up in cost basis sounds like something that does not have any relationship with anything that I do whatsoever. Step up in cost, that sounds very technical. And yes, it is rather technical, Kevin, but all of us, all of us are subject to a step up in cost basis. One way or the other, Step up in cost basis is going to affect just about everybody that's listening to this show right now. That is correct. Step up in cost basis. Let's say you bought a piece of property. You're, let's say that you bought a piece of property in 1975 and you bought it for $15,000. $15,000 for a nice little lot. And uh, you thought, well, maybe I'll build on it one day, but maybe I'll just keep it and I'll sell it, make a profit on it maybe one day. And, um, but you held on to it. $15,000. And let's say today, with real estate prices the way they are, that same piece of property is worth $515,000. Well, that's a good deal, right? You're going to be able to sell that thing potentially for $515,000, something you paid $15,000 for. That gives you a $500,000 profit. I'm not talking about your home here. I'm talking about other properties that you, have, that, that you may have bought. So now you have a $500,000 profit. Great deal. You made some money off of it. But you also know in the back of your mind somewhere that you're going to be paying taxes on that profit that you made. That's a capital gains tax that you're going to be paying on that. And right now we're experiencing, because of the tax tax cuts and job act of 2017, we're experiencing a, um, a little bit of a break with capital gains taxes. We're not having to pay quite as much of a percentage of our gain in taxes when we when we actually sell that piece of property. Well, that goes up. That will go back, revert back to 15% for everybody or more in uh, 2027. That's no 2026, January 2026 when this the tax government cuts and job acts goes away basically because it's not going to be uh, something that's going to be renewed. So we're going to wind up with more people subject to more capital gains taxes than we've been used to over the past few years. If you have stocks, if you have stocks in anything other than an IRA, any type of investment like that, then you are subject to capital gains tax. I think a lot of people realize that because they they see capital gains taxes on their brokerage account statement all the time. You've got a capital gain that you made. You're going to get a 1099 that's going to say this is a capital gain, and you're going to pay taxes on that. But the step up in cost basis comes into play when you die, when you leave this property to somebody else. So let's say you sold that piece of property 
for 500 you could have sold it for $515,000, but you didn't. You just left it. $15,000 is what you paid for it. Now you're leaving it to your heirs. Your heirs now are going to inherit something that's worth $515,000 because it steps up. Your, your, the cost basis to your heirs goes now to $515,000. So they're not going to pay a tax on it if they're able to sell it for that amount of money because they enjoyed the step up in cost basis. You held on to it until you died. And then they get it, and they get it at the value it was the day you died. So that's one important thing about sometimes people tend to sell a piece of property like that during their retirement years, and or actually you, you sell the property, and at some point in time you're going to have a capital gains tax issue in two different ways there. We're talking about step up in cost basis and how it can impact capital gains taxes. Gary, capital gains taxes, as you pointed out, is not an inheritance tax. It is an income tax that is generated when you sell a specific type of asset, like you mentioned, a capital asset. A capital asset is real estate or it's stock. And that's a very valuable income tax benefit that we can leave to our surviving spouse, our children, our grandchildren. But the key to getting this is you must inherit the property. You don't get this if you decide uh, you're going to sell your property during lifetime. Right. You don't get this if uh, you decide you want to give away your property, including your home, during lifetime. The only way your children or family are going to get this is they inherit it. Is that right? Right. And so... You think about this $515,000 piece of property. You paid $15,000 for it back in 1970-something. Now it's worth five fifteen, And instead of just holding on to that and leaving it to your heirs at your death, when they get it at that value, that $515,000 value, they get it at that value. You decide to give it to them before you die. What you've also given to them is that incredible step up in cost basis because now you've given them a piece of property that you paid $15,000 for. That's just like they paid $15,000 for it. So now they're going to get it at a $515,000 value. If your heirs ever decide to sell it, which they will, 99.9% of the time, they're going to sell that piece of property. After you die, typically. After you die because everybody, you're maybe two or three um, of your heirs get together and say, yeah, let's sell it. They're all going to be subject to a capital gain of $500,000. So they're going to pay 15% okay. on $500,000 in, in capital gains taxes. So the key difference in your example is you buy a piece of property for 15000 That's the cost basis. You don't do anything with it during your lifetime and you die and you leave it to your heirs and when you leave it to your heirs when they inherit it it's worth 515,000 right all that appreciation all that gain escapes taxation right because they got it at death 
as opposed to your other example where you buy a piece of property for 15000 and you decide, nah, I'm just going to go ahead and give it to them. Maybe I'm, because yeah, I'm tired of holding on to it. Maybe Let's... because you were told by an attorney that you'd lose it if you get sick and go into a nursing home. So you said, ah, I'll better get everything in my kid's name. So you give them your property while you're living. You're also giving them that very low cost basis. And they're not going to send you a thank you note when they have to pay that huge tax. Yeah, you're on giving that. them a ticking tax time bomb. Right. So that's one good point, too, Kevin. From a, when it comes to the estate planning side, be very careful. This is why your advisors have to be communicating. This is so critical, especially now, because we've seen such an inflation in the, the cost of the, the value of real estate really around here in pretty much every part of this country. You've seen the real, your value of your real estate go up tremendously, your house, whatever it is, over the past few years. But any property that you own, any investments that you own, if you decide to give those things away prior to your death, then you're also, like you said, Kevin, giving the, giving someone a ticking tax time bomb. They're going to have to pay a lot of money in taxes they, did, they didn't have to do because they could have left it at their death. This is the type of advice that you give people. This is important, and it's important that you're communicating with the financial advisor, whomever the financial advisor for these people might be, just to make sure that they don't have this enormous bad surprise after you're gone. It was it could have been easily fixed. It could have been easily remedied while you were still alive, but your professional advisors didn't, didn't communicate. And this very valuable benefit also includes your home, which is one of the most common pieces of real estate that people own. People Mm -hmm. may not own a second home or a lot, but most everybody owns a home. And these benefits, giving your kids your home at your death, gives them a step up in cost basis, applies to your home. Yeah, paid $100,000 for the home is worth a million now. You just gave them a $900,000 taxable income that they weren't expecting to have at that point in time. Kevin, they can call us at, people can call us at 888-371-2847. We'll be glad to have a conversation with you about this ticking tax time bomb. When we come back, we're going to talk more about financial planning from a lawyer's perspective. Beneficiary designation from a lawyer's perspective. I'm Kevin Tharp, elder law and estate planning attorney. And I'm Gary Anderson, financial advisor, Anderson Advisors. Gary, I've been a uh, estate planning attorney now for a long time, over 35 years. And you know the story. I started when I was 10 and, and started practicing law at that time. Yeah, yep. Uh, the Doogie Hauser of lawyers. Yeah. And you uh, were good at it from day one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And if I'm old enough to know who Doogie Hauser is, I wasn't 10 years old when I started practicing <laughs> law. But that's a whole other story. But one of the things I've seen, particularly in the last decade or so, with financial products especially, is they're trending now. A lot of financial institutions, banks and and brokerage houses and other places, are trending towards allowing a beneficiary designation on their accounts. It may be called beneficiary designation. It may be called payable on death or POD. It might be called transfer on death. Uh, All of those are different names for the same thing, beneficiary designation. 
Now, for decades, centuries, for in fact, life insurance companies allowed you to name a beneficiary on your life insurance policy. Pensions and 401ks and pension plans allowed people to designate beneficiaries. So this is not new for those industries, but especially for banks. In the last 10 years, a lot of banks are now letting you designate a beneficiary. Very common with CDs, savings account, money market accounts. And many banks are actually letting you do that with checking accounts. And those are a lot of times financial topics and financial advisors because they're connected to a financial account. And so if you're a financial advisor and you talk about that, then sometimes that's where they say, now I can wear an estate, I'm an estate planner. I can wear an estate planning hat because I can tell a person who their beneficiary should be. I can help people name a beneficiary. But a lot of times, surprisingly, with financial advisors, many of them, especially when you're doing, dealing with a huge retail uh, and you're kind of doing it yourself, I don't want to name company names, but you know the big ones out there and you're doing and you'll call one day and you may have some questions and you may get this person and then you'll call a month later and you'll get a different person. Call five minutes later. Five minutes later (laughs) and get get a a different different person. person. And so many times, uh, unfortunately, with many financial advisors and financial institutions, Gary, this beneficiary designation is a secondary thought. It's like, oh, well, just, you know, just fill in something, you know, I've had. People tell me their financial advisor said, well, if you can't make up your mind, just make it your estate. Mm -hmm. And then you can sort it out there. Beneficiary designation is one of the most common forms of titling. When I'm working with my clients and I walk them through how to make their trust the beneficiary. Now, I can't do it for them, but I can walk them through the steps. Gary, that that takes sometimes about 90 takes away 90% of the titling things they have to do with one beneficiary, a couple of beneficiary designations, they've now titled 90% of their assets. And then they, uh, I help them title their property in the name of their trust and they've taken care of titling. This titling thing is not real hard because now many financial products let you designate a beneficiary. It has no impact, Gary, from the financial perspective of whether you're invested in a stock or a bond or a mutual fund, whether your IRAs are in gold or they're in REITs. Who the beneficiary is has no impact on the investment. And so as a lawyer, I'm communicating with the client and I'm happy to communicate with their financial advisor of what's the best beneficiary choice. Because you really got two choices. You name people or you name an entity. Mm. That entity could be your estate, bad choice, worst choice, last choice. You could name uh, a corporation. Okay, Not really a good choice either, especially on an IRA. Or you could name a trust. That's a legal entity. Can't name your will as a beneficiary because a beneficiary, a will is not a legal entity. And if you do name your will, you're naming your estate. 
And this is why beneficiary designations and wills don't go together. Yet I've seen so many people who have done this. They've done this very important estate tax planning. I've seen married couples that were told by their lawyer, because what you have in your will, you can shelter your entire estate from estate taxes. Their will has a testamentary credit shelter trust and a testamentary uh, marital deduction trust, two of, the mo- two of the most common things you can do in the estate st- uh, tax planning that eliminates the state taxes for 90% of the families out there, especially married couples. But they do all of that in a will. And yet over here, they may have a $6 million estate and three of it's in their IRAs. And they have an IRA beneficiary, their spouse or their kids named as beneficiary, and they die. That IRA money is never getting into that will. It's never getting into the trust you set up in that will. And therefore, you lose the estate tax savings because beneficiary designation and the document called a will cannot and are not coordinated together. And Gary, title, beneficiary designation will always trump whatever the document says. Yeah, but I think there are probably a lot of people listening out there that, for whatever reasons, they think things like this don't apply to them. They think that, well, maybe we've got things situated in such a way that everything is just going to go to our family just fine, not going to be any problems. But I think a lot of times they're basing that on what they've heard somewhere, what somebody told them at the Waffle House or what some conversation. Or their lawyer. Or their lawyer. Or their financial advisor. And financial advisors are pretty bad about things like that. And it goes back to uh, who's your estate planner? Who is your estate planning attorney? Talk to them and let them be able to communicate with the financial advisor and the estate planning attorney, communicate to keep things like this from happening. Because this affects just about everybody out there, Kevin. Absolutely. And it's not necessarily those with large estates that do this. We have clients many times that have a spouse that they know has a disability. They have a spouse that they know has Parkinson's, like my parents. My dad knew my mother had Parkinson's. We have families out there that have children and grandchildren they know have Down syndrome or autism. Mm. And so they spend all of this money on a will, and the lawyer tells them they have it all taken care of. And the lawyer never asks them. The lawyer never Uh, ask the financial advisor, tell me how their IRAs and their life insurance are titled. Tell me how their financial accounts, who's the beneficiary on those things? And yet you got all this uh, sophisticated estate planning, special needs trusts and everything else in a will, and yet the title of your largest assets have a beneficiary different than the will. And again, remember, you can't name a will as a beneficiary anyway. So how does this testamentary trust for your grandchild with autism or this testamentary tr- credit shelter trust to save on estate taxes and this marital deduction trust to take care of your spouse and save on estate taxes, how does it get funded if the beneficiary designation and the will can't be coordinated together, aren't coordinated together? And that's why we like using a revocable living trust, because you can name a revocable living trust as the beneficiary on any of these financial assets. 
and then inside that revocable trust, have a credit shelter trust to save on future estate taxes and a marital deduction trust to take care of your spouse and save on taxes or a special needs trust for your son or your granddaughter or your spouse you know has a disability. And what you've done is you've gotten wishes in a document and title coordinated together without changing the investment, without changing the financial account. And this is why it's important that those things be coordinated together. Kevin, this is an important conversation that many people need to have with you. Why don't you give them your information? KevinTharp.com is my website, and that's the best way to reach me. Investment advisory services are offered through Anderson Advisors, a registered investment advisory firm. Anderson Advisors is an independent financial services firm that helps people create retirement strategies using a variety of insurance and investment products. Investments involves risk, including the potential for loss of principal. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Any reference to protection, safety, and lifetime income generally refers to fixed insurance products, never securities or investments. Insurance guarantees are backed by the strength and paying capabilities of the insurance carrier. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. You should consult with a financial advisor to help determine the best options for your particular circumstances. No statement made during this show shall constitute tax or legal advice. Our firm is not endorsed by the United States government or any governmental agency. The information and opinions construed herein presented by third parties have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable. Completeness cannot be guaranteed. Neither Gary Anderson or Anderson Advisors is affiliated with attorney J. Kevin Tharp or any guests on this show.